The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Germ Warfare is Jeremy now on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live is my email address. As always, do email me and as always, do also include your location. Uh, as you know, I am secretly harvesting your data because I intend to hand it over to the globalists in... No, I'm not doing anything with it. I don't even know how to operate a spreadsheet. But I love knowing where you are mailing me from. And uh, I always appreciate the feedback. Jump into the live chat as always. Uh, go onto my page on TNT's website if you want to listen back to any of my previous conversations. They're all there in both video format and audio. The reason why things look a little bit different here is because I'm not at my home studio in Cape Town. I am just outside the capital of South Africa, which is Pretoria. It's in the north of the country. Um, I will be here until Sunday, and then I'm back on Monday in the usual setup. Uh, but for now, I hope things hold. I'm, it's a little bit of a suspicious internet connection here on the farm, but uh, so, so far, so good. Anyway, on that note, I have the one of the most fascinating discussions coming up so let's do that my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas delivering the facts source i can trust today's news talk radio tnt leo biddle thank you for joining me in the trenches thank you very much for inviting me on pleasure to talk to you again jeremy it's bizarre uh i don't think i have encountered this talking point at all in the last few years uh, of the COVID narrative, um, <laughs> and it's it's so important. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about what you do and what we're going to be talking about. Okay, well, for the last twenty years, I've been running uh, wildlife and and specifically primate and uh, great ape rescue charity. So we rescue these animals, try to put them back out in the wild, and that's uh, brought me into doing a lot of work in uh, illegal wildlife trade and running uh, large animal sanctuaries right now in Borneo, where we end up with hundreds, if not thousands of animals that, that come in from the, the illegal wildlife trade. And we're only able to put a very small percentage of those animals back out in the wild for a whole bunch of reasons that I can go into if your audience is interested. Um, but, but it means uh, I've ended up running very large sanctuaries with a large number of orangutan, which uh, you know mainstream science tells us is one of our closest living relatives. Um, and an observation I had very early on in 2020 is that none of the primates I was working with were getting sick. And I worked with lots of different primate species, but um, particularly the orangutan, there was no evidence that they were getting sick at a time we were uh, being told that the entire world was being locked down for a deadly escape or, or you know, a transmitted uh, virus. Okay, so just to, just to clarify, because <laughs> I remember back in 2020 or 2021 or whenever, everything and everybody was being infected by this deadly virus. Uh, so it supposedly jumped from a bat to to a human, which obviously would therefore mean that it can jump to anything. Of course, I mean it's 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 Monty Python esque in its in its absurdity. But what you're saying to me is that our closest biological relative, theoretically, therefore, should have been getting this deadly virus, and it wasn't. 
Absolutely. Uh, it, it's um, it's impossible that they couldn't be. And, you know, remember in those uh, in that first year, we were being told that mink were dying by their millions. And we were also hearing that cats and dogs were catching it, that white-tailed deer, you know, in, in America were catching it. And chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos and orangutan weren't. Uh, that's to say nothing of the macaques and the baboons and the howler monkeys and the langurs. It's like this is just impossible there's no way mink are getting this if uh, uh chimpanzees aren't getting it okay how did you notice though that they weren't getting sick well there, there was a lot of i think you know you could call it fear porn there was a lot of noise coming through veterinary channels and academic channels that, that i was associated with even before all the lockdowns began saying this is the big one all of your animals are going to die so doing my due diligence i looked into it and was like there doesn't appear to be anything here and then you know obviously when the lockdowns of the global lockdowns started kicking in i, I mean i i was well aware that something didn't make sense but but out of the duty of care i kept a very close eye on, on all of my charges and honestly jeremy in, in four years there hasn't been a cough a cold a sniffle amongst any of the primate species that, that, <laughs> that i've been working with and we have seen spurious uh, articles going out you know uh, a, a gorilla in a zoo in you know america northern america has caught coronavirus they're all gonna die and there was countless articles across mainstream channels that were saying this could wipe out you know orangutan this could wipe out gorillas this could devastate you know uh, wild primate populations but you know i've been doing this for quite a long time and i'm a very well connected mm. with groups that work in the field both for wild populations and running large sanctuaries like myself and although none of them would come out and say it in public or, or, or uh, aside from myself they were reporting through back channels that no that there's nothing we haven't had a single animal die we haven't really had a single animal get mm. sick but you have the story that, that's portrayed in the press and then you have the reality on the ground yeah, and people forget that gorillas and other primates do get respiratory illnesses? They are said to. It's a mainstay of science. I mean, that's one of the reasons that drugs, you know, uh, and diseases, uh, we, we mm. use primates as a model, particularly the chimpanzee as well, as the the best, you know, uh, replication, replicant for, for what would happen in a human being. You know, it's a, it's a mainstay of clinical trials. Yeah. Um, the fact that they're not and we are told that they catch everything that humans get i mean we're told that hiv jumped into us uh, uh from you know yeah. a simian uh, immunodeficiency virus yes. uh, measles polio all of the heps uh, tetanus coronaviruses uh, influenzas ebola marburg everything everything that we get they are supposed to get and you know yeah. that has been shown in some academic sort of papers and in some lab settings in individual cases but what i've not seen in my entire career is you know all of the orangutan that we're studying over a certain area just dropping down dead of you know ebola or or, or anything mm, yeah so i mean why i'm asking that is because just like people get sick and i've always been getting sick so do the primates nothing nothing was different in 2020 Nothing at all. <laughs> and, yet, and yet people still buy into this. So obviously what's going on here, Leo, is that the gorillas weren't watching TV. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the few people that did try to speak out, I mean, we've all been heavily affected by censorship. But I, I didn't walk into it naively. I, I had an idea of what was going on, although four years mm -hmm. of research have massively sort of, you know, uh, improved my understanding of what was going on. I was a little bit shocked how heavily, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the girders just fell down on me. I was deleted online overnight. 
every mainstream you know article i'd ever written or interview i'd ever given just got memory hold uh, and banned from all social media platforms pretty much until the beginning of 2021. Mm. so i've actually looked into this a little bit and i can find no evidence of any type of viral disease that spreads between i think any animal I mean, but bear in mind that, that we, we human beings are supposed to not be immunologically uh, naive. You, you know the story of the conquistadors going to South America, and because these were, you know, uh, sheltered mm. populations, they never experienced Western flus, we wiped them all out. Well, the same story is said to be true of chimpanzees, gorillas, and, and, and all of the non-human primates, that they haven't been mixing in such large numbers traveling around the world. So they're actually meant to be far more susceptible to human disease. And given that the, there are very few yes. habitats on Earth now that don't have high levels of human encroachment or hunting going on in there, you know, well, we should have dropped these bombs of, of highly contagious diseases. And I can't see any mm. credible story anywhere in the literature of a mass die off of wild species that is independent of heavy pollution, mass starvation or forest fires. Yeah, I yes. mean, animals do die on mass, but actually a spreading disease that's just wiping animals out. Again, there are these spurious academic sort of entries about it, but it doesn't match real world observations. That's exactly what I found. So I was looking at, for example, the Kruger National Park here in South Africa, and there's pretty much no, um, there's no history of any type of, of pathogenic outbreak um, of any significant order that is. I mean, if you're talking about three or four animals um, getting sick at the same time, uh, you know, that's always almost always seems to be linked to some sort of environment environmental impact whether it's i don't know a, a fire a storm a pollution in the water or something like that but they don't seem to spread anything from from one to the to the next i mean it, obviously my thinking's radically changed or, or, or evolved a lot over the last mm. four years but even prior to this i was finding it perplexing because i was looking at all of the, the literature saying oh well my animals should be getting sick all the time i've got a pangolin next to a, a bat next to a turtle next yeah. to a gibbon um but after about 10 years into it, it was like, well, I don't think I really have to worry about disease. It just doesn't seem to be a thing other than occasionally. I'm, I'm not pretending I, I'd worked it all out. I would have one animal that was sick yeah. and then following everything, I might put a test and he's like, oh, it's got this. But I never saw anything spread like wildfire. It doesn't make sense, Dio. Uh, I mean, how is it that humans are just inundated with just viral pathogens and outbreaks and pandemics and all these sorts of terrible things that are happening to us and yet we're supposed to be so healthy and we don't see this in the animal kingdom well we, we do see it in the animal kingdom actually um i, I would caveat and say we, we see it in humans obviously but we also see it in uh, industrial agriculture and we see it in our companion animals yes. now these are the two groups of animals that are supposed to be receiving very expensive cutting-edge medical care and they do have die-offs and they do develop cancers and problems and a whole host of diseases that we are not seeing in their wild counterparts and this makes no sense. Well, unless, you know, you go through the evolution of thought that a lot of us yes. have in the last four years. You mentioned cancer. What are your observations there? I have treated, not treated, I've seen two cases of cancer or what I diagnosed as cancer on necropsy out of thousands of animals in my career. And both were long-term animals being kept in very inferior 
uh, uh, terrible conditions, basically fed absolutely, you know, uh, scraps from from people's tables. And yeah, on necropsy that, that they were riddled with uh, what, what I would call uh, tumors, you know, that metastasized throughout the whole body. Um, what really strikes me, though, is I've done a lot of work in bushmeat markets and I work with a lot of indigenous tribes in different areas. But, but here in Borneo, I've never heard a story of a hunter coming back saying, oh, well, we killed the pig, but we decided not to eat it. Because when we opened it up, it was riddled with all these tumors. <laughs> but the kind of normally friendly science is that an animal that gets sick in the wild. I mean, this is such an excuse and a cop out, if you like. Well, if they get cancer or they get a disease, they'll get predated by a wild animal. That's why we don't see wild animals with cancer. But humans are the number yeah. one predators of animals we'd be the ones that would be taking them out first so bushmeat markets should be full of diseased animals but they don't appear to be not to the level that people won't eat them what yeah i mean something's wrong here what 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 do you think is going on i think we're being lied to on an epic scale and the the institutional capture doesn't just uh refer to sort of pharmaceutical companies or universities it's the NGO sector mm. as well, that, that many of, of them are being funded well. Huge sums of money from the same organizations that have come under the spotlight in the last four years for, for their, their role in, in what's been going on. Well, they've been funding international NGOs for a long time. And in fact, and when I first spoke out, I was offered large sums of money to just be quiet, to stop pointing out that, hey, primates around the world aren't getting sick. There's no primate pandemic. Mm. I mean... If you think about it, uh, this is something that I've thought about a lot and I don't quite know how to put it into words, but I think you can probably follow my, my line of thinking here. And that is, if you separate wild animals or animals in nature to domesticated animals or those that live in environments, the ones that seem to get injections, vaccinations, antibiotics, uh, are those that, that, that live with humans and that includes agriculture, you know, like beef and whatever, this doesn't happen in the wild. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's starting to happen in some zoological institutions, but of course it doesn't. And then if you look at the insane vaccination schedule for children in America, they're, they're getting like, what, 90 injections now on the schedule before they're 18. Well, the orangutan that I've hand-reared, mm. and it's been dozens upon dozens of them, and put back out in the wild, they never got a single vaccination. And they weren't surrounded by humans. We limit human contact, but they were around us, and none of them are dead. I'm sorry, some have been shot, but 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 uh, uh, none, none have died of a, a disease mm. since I've been working with them. Uh, it makes no sense. You know, we're, we're giving all of these medications to human children, but we don't give them to chimpanzees or orangutan, and they're doing just fine. And again, they're meant to be vulnerable, more vulnerable to these diseases than we are. So just to clarify, what you're saying is that there's absolutely, in your research, zero evidence of any primate uh, that a uh, supposedly picked up COVID or long COVID. I mean, that's, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, and they don't seem to make one another sick. No, I, I mean, I, I would say there is some evidence and it's come out of, uh, you know, academic sort of institutions and out of some zoological institutions. But at a primate population level, there has been zero health impact upon every single one of these things. Mm. Um, so 
I, I mean, also with testing, right? You know, a gorilla could be having a bad day in a zoo. Uh, it might be receiving sort of less contact, less enrichment because people are wearing bubble wrap. It sneezes. Someone tests it with a meaningless test, and they say, "Yeah, well, we found proof. A gorilla's got COVID, but we're not seeing them drop down dead of it or anything like that." And it's not just COVID, uh, Jeremy. It, it, it's most of these highly contagious diseases. We're not seeing a population level impact at all, and they're not receiving medications for them. Yeah, you said tested. How how do they test primates <laughs> with the same PCR nonsense? The same useless test that, that they were using with humans. That, uh, incidentally, was specific. How do they test primates <laughs> with the same PCR nonsense? The same useless test that, that they were using with humans. That, uh, incidentally, was specifically designed for COVID. It rolled out from Lombardy in Italy in February and suddenly was worldwide. I, I had some to, to test my wildlife with. And on opening the first one and looking at it, it's like, this is not safe. I'm not putting this in inside any animal, you know? Mm. Uh, Leo, i just going to quickly jump to a break. I'll be back there shortly. My name is Jim. This is TNT. Recent announcement by the Office of National Statistics, the ONS here in the UK, with regards to them changing their uh, excess death uh, methodology. Or, uh, to the layman that's listening, they've reinvented counting, which is quite good, quite convenient. I hope that's passed down uh, through the education system. And now, uh, last year, there were almost no excess deaths. That's great, they've solved the excess death problem. In fact, since 2020, uh, they, have, they have decided that most of the excess deaths didn't happen. Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. So I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. Listen. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Leo, got a few messages here in the live chat and um, there's a comment here that says disease would be a problem for apes if you started pumping them with antibiotics. I mean, that kind of alludes to the comment I was making earlier. It's a good point. I had a very great vet that worked for me some some uh, years ago, and she worked with me for quite a long time, and I got on very well with her. She taught me a lot of you know surgical techniques that I didn't have. But she went through the database of animals that we've been receiving and came to me and posed a question and said, oh, there's a, a correlation with when there's higher mortality at the center, and I don't think you'll guess uh, what, what it is. So I was like, well, I guess it's when I don't have full-time vets and I have to look after the animals myself because I'm, I'm not a qualified veterinarian. I've been kind of ad hocing as a vet. But, but I, I don't pretend to be a uh, veterinarian. And she's like, no, no, it's not that. It's the reverse of that. Your mortality spikes when you have long-term vets. 
And the one thing, so, I mean, running a wildlife charity is always challenging. There's never enough money. And I, I've always wanted vets. And I feel not, not an imposter syndrome. I do whatever needs to be done. If an animal's, you know, been shot and you need to take a bullet out, if I don't have a vet, I'll try and take the bullet out myself and, and you know, stitch it back up with quite high success rates. I, I don't think I've negligently killed any animals yet. But um, the one thing that, I, so whenever I didn't have a vet, I would want to get a vet. And, you know, you're putting ads out, trying to get people that have experience with wildlife. And it's, it's quite hard to find, you know, people people that, that are highly skilled to come and work for peanuts in the developing world, as aspirational as it is. But um, the one thing that was always a major pain for me is how much it cost. Not so much the salary of the vet, but all the drugs that would go through. And then the longer I was doing this, like, you know, 10 to 15 years into it, I would have new vets come in and I was much more confident in my own abilities. And like, look, just stop giving out all these drugs. Watch the animal for 24 hours first. If it has a scratch, don't lead in with Baytril or antibiotics. Um, don't anesthetize an animal unnecessarily because, you know, some of the animals we work with are pretty big. Even to inject some animals, you might have to anesthetize them first. And it's like, this has risks. This has problems, you know? But I, I mean, I, I, I would even now still occasionally use antibiotics if I had something come in that had been caught in a snare and, you know, his leg was rotting or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I would. Um, but apart from uh, pain relief and anesthesia, I use almost no uh, pharmaceutical products. And, and that predates 2020. But with everything I've learned in the last four years, I'd be as likely to give them garlic as I would be uh, 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 pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think a lot of us have realized uh, through the COVID era is the uh, overprescription of, of anything pharmaceutical. There is absolutely no reason to be consuming nearly as 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 many pharmaceuticals as what we probably have traditionally been, been consuming. I mean, we can reduce all of that right down to, to the bare essential, which is the... the I missed the last word you said, but but I, I think I called the gist. So it's, uh, yeah, absolutely. And of course, in the wild, where these animals are doing perfectly well, uh, they really have reduced it down to, to the bare minimum. Mm. Um, I was going to ask you something now, and I, I was just about to to ask you, and I've now forgotten, but I, was, I wanted to ask you about the antibiotics that, that you were talking about. Uh, have you found that that in the wild, uh, the primates particularly, the ones that do get antibiotics, are they more susceptible to, to illness? When you say in the wild, we wouldn't generally be administering any medications to any wild animal. So they might only come into us through a case oh, of- Oh, okay, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean in re rehabilitation. Yeah, well, again, I don't really use so, so much in the way of uh, medications. Um, mm. I think you would probably be able to get the answer. So, so I actually don't have a, a, a enough experience to be able to give you a, a qualified answer on that. But I would imagine in zoos, you would see that the, the use of antibiotics is much higher, but particularly in Western zoos. I know a lot of centers uh, like me struggle even to get pharmaceuticals. Uh, uh, so no. And, and generally in field based stuff where people are trying to put animals back into the wild we're not over medicating animals because we don't want them to become dependent even on anti-parasitics so m most centers won't routinely deworm their animals because we would worry that they would become dependent on that and then if released back into the wild then that they wouldn't be able to resist parasites on their own so uh, i i can't say from my own experience that, that i see animals getting sicker because we don't generally medicate mm. that much 
You uh, previously spoke about uh, leopards dying after being vaccinated. Is that right? Yeah, so that was my own personal experience that um, uh, that the only uh, four wild animals that I've uh, uh, vaccinated was I was following guidelines. I was quite new to to all of this. And um, feline panleukopenia virus, FPV, uh, is said to be absolutely devastating. And I had one animal that came into me dead. But I mean, this was a wild cat. It could have died from any cause whatsoever. But I did a necropsy, looked at it, like might have FPV, uh, did an antigen test and popped a positive result. Now, I, I see how that guided my thinking years ago, but but uh, I don't, I'm not sure I would infer the same from a positive test result now. And then started reading a lot of the literature, started to speaking to the small carnivore survival groups out there. And they were all saying, yeah, yeah, you should definitely vaccinate for FPV if the animal's not going to go back to the wild. And I had these two leopards with me. I got the FPV vaccine and vaccinated them, both of the leopards, which I'd had for about a month before I made the decision to vaccinate them, died within a week of uh, of FPV. And the people that I'd sought advice from said, well, uh, it's such a shame. You know, you, you got there just moments too late. If only you got there, you know, a couple of weeks earlier, the animal would have survived. But right there and then I, I didn't buy it. And then to, to uh, and and stop vaccinating uh, wild cats that came into the centre. I haven't had other wild cats die of FPV, with another exception. We had two flat-headed cats, an incredibly rare animal over here that I'd kept for months and were healthy, and reached out with local stakeholders, government partners, and and international groups. I was going to put radio collars on that these two animals and release them. And I mean, a decision was taken above my head, but but I still went along with it. Um, to vaccinate them both against FPV. Both died from FPV uh, a week and two weeks later. And at that point, it's like, I'm never vaccinating any wildlife ever again for anything. FPV, what do you think causes that? I think in captive wildcats, stress is far more of a problem than people realize. They frequently won't defecate or urinate, you know, uh, uh, if they're kept in a cage, which they typically have to be. Um, they won't eat. They'll get kidney stones from stress. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, it, it's supposed to be a viral illness. I'm struggling with the narrative of, of most viral illnesses. So um, what causes it? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure being put into captivity because we're not seeing them drop down dead in the wild from FPV. Yeah, again, there's that paradox. It's always when it's animals in captivity or in domesticated environments that seem to be getting these illnesses. Absolutely. And in lab settings, that, that's another major one, that, that you're looking at a lot of where this mm. seminal sort of papers, oh, we've proved this is real because we got 20 macaques, shaved their heads, put them in cages, knocked them out, put half a liter of, you know, sputum and mixed drugs and, you know, erythromycin into their lungs, along with a supposed, you know, a scraping from a cat's eye, and then three of them got sick. You know, uh, and then we killed them, and then we, we concluded that, you know, uh, based on histopathological uh, uh, studies, that they died from what we injected them with or, or force-fed them. And you're like, I don't think what you're reading from this means what you're reading from it. Yeah. Like, I, I um, so, yeah, no, go on, go on. I see narratives. Uh, we're supposed to be a story-loving species that we are almost interpreting or, or, or many. Um, 
creating a subjective reality based on the stories that we believe. And often there's framing, anchoring. The story has to start somewhere. So we have some media come out. We have a prestigious university, you know, a PhD or a published academia that says, wow, did you know that orangutan can die from herpes B? And then, you know, once that's in your head, you're like, well, my orangutan died. I better test it for herpes B. And he's like, oh, it's got herpes B. And, and you can then end up, um, you're reinforcing your own beliefs every single step of the way without going back to question foundational axioms of thought, you know? Mm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, EPV is supposed to be viral. Um, but I mean, as you said, it's just something you don't even see in the wild. Uh, well, but the, okay. So then, I guess a counter question would be: Well, how would you know? Because you're not you're not looking at animals in the wild in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, given that it's meant to be so contagious, you would expect mass die-offs. Yeah. I mean, how could yeah, these animals true. even still be there? And, and then you know, there's another point that, that let's say with FPV, but but I'd say the same is true for uh, coronavirus. So when I started uh, screaming, saying, "Hey, the apes aren't getting sick," uh, a lot of my colleagues were criticizing me fiercely, saying, "Oh, you're being reckless. You're endangering all of their lives. People might not be careful. They might go out around these animals. Then once COVID gets into their populations, it'll devastate all of them." It's like, hang on. I thought most of these diseases, most new diseases in mm. humans, are meant to be coming out of zoonotic hosts. If 96% of emergent diseases in humans are coming from wildlife, clearly these viruses must be circulating around in the wild. If AIDS jumped into us from chimpanzees and gorillas, well, clearly there are viruses moving in these populations anyway. And if they're not getting medicine and vaccinations and they don't have sanitation and all the benefits of you know uh, uh, developed living, so the, again, I, I call it sort of normie science uh, explanations or excuses. It's like, well, of course the wild cats aren't getting FPV because they don't mix with domestic cats. It's like domestic cats go everywhere. Yeah, when I put exactly. camera traps around in national parks, the number one animal I catch is a domestic cat. <laughs> but it, it's it's very it's a very interesting observation, Leo. Uh, when you think about these breakouts that happen, you know, like I don't know, mad cow or. Uh, bird flu or uh, you know, these illnesses that they end up having to kill 30,000 chickens or whatever. These are all agricultural settings where you are putting loads of animals into environments that they don't normally find themselves in. Absolutely. Uh, high stress animals, they're, they're inbred as well. So the genetic, you know, sort of variability in uh, mm. chickens and cows in industrial feed houses is significantly different from the wild oryx that the, the cow, you know, uh, originated from. So you've got, you know, kind of inbred as you like and, you know, been, been selectively bred to produce bigger breasts on chickens, more milk on cows. It's not quite the wild animal here. So potentially it's a weaker uh, uh, thing anyway. But I, I mean, another thing about these mass die offs in agricultural animals many many times including in the case of the mink they kill these animals but then the story comes out it's like wow did you know five million mink died from covid it's like well i i i i'm, I'm not sure on the numbers here so i'm, I'm just freewheeling maybe five died in a lab yeah. you kill five million mink and then the, the media rolls out wow it's just devastated mink populations with foot and mouth a lot of those animals were being slaughtered based on one sick animal positive tests slaughter the whole herd but then the body count uh, later attributed back to it is all the animals they killed, not the animals that actually got sick. What do you think is the, the sweet spot? Uh, how do you balance 
uh, bringing animals like primates into sort of domestic environments uh, where you need to try and help them in some way because now now they end up in an environment that's not natural. Um, I mean, do you just leave them alone or, or do you try and find that, that, that sort of happy medium? So typically as part of my, my charitable work for pre-2020, we would be trying to drive animals, non-lethally obviously, away from human settlements because actually primates, mm. especially the, the smaller primates, not so much the great apes, they're very adaptable. They're very quick and they'll start, you know, uh, tourists will feed them, people might feed them. You get monkey temples or, or, or monkey islands all over the place where people love macaques sitting on their lap feeding them. But then eventually the animals habituate too much, become a bit aggressive, bite people, and even a small macaque or a, a baboon can do horrific damage to, to a, a human, especially the mouths once they get their big incisors. Then people mm. panic and then just start killing all of the animals. Animals. So that's why we try and drive them away. But I, I would say with macaque populations around the world, they are already in human settlements. You know, they're, they're, they're rubbishing through, they're going through our rubbish dumps, uh, that they're, they're going into tourist areas, they're stealing farmers' crops. There, there is quite a heavy sort of, you know, interface already. So they should presumably be catching all of our diseases. What do you make of a zoo? Ethically, I'm very opposed to zoos. I guess I have been my whole life. Um, I look at how the public see them as conservation centers for the world. We're breeding them in captivity so we can put them back in. Very few animals ever go back to the wild for, from, you know, full captive bred, you know, zoos. They, they've lost their connection with the wild. It would be me, uh, the equivalent to me taking some retirees from Florida that are massively overweight and dumping them on the plains of Africa and say, no, don't worry, you're back in your natural habitat. Good luck, you know, or or city slickers that, that are 10 generations <laughs> bred down from farmers and doing the same, but releasing them in the jungles of Borneo and say, oh, don't worry, you should fit right in, you know, that they don't survive, that uh, they can be cold breaks as, as well. It's not all instinctual. Yeah. By extension, I'm going to probably want to probably trigger a few people here. But what, what are your views on reality shows that deal with animals? I'm going. I'm thinking back to Steve Irwin and then all the sort of shows that spurred off uh, as a result. I've intersected with, with uh, groups that have wanted to do shows. I've never really done a reality show myself, and I've always had strong rules about no, no contact, no exploitation mm. of animals. Um, I mean, I've been on quite a few television documentaries myself. What you see on TV is, even when I've seen myself on television, it's not reflective of what we're doing. The editing, the narrator, you know, will tell a very different story from what the reality is on the ground, often making it much more heroic. You know, in some ways it makes you look good. I've been yeah. called wildlife warrior or eco hero and stuff like that. It's like, mostly I just do paperwork and beg people for money because I can't afford to pay for everything, you know? Um, but those reality, you know, out there shows, you know, the, the survival ones, most of it's nonsense. Most of it's absolute nonsense. Yeah, but there is something, there is something magical about them to some degree because they are teaching uh, the average person about wildlife. And if they were not there at all, there would be a bit of a black hole, don't you think? Uh, yeah, arguably, although they, they could be cherry coding it a little bit as well. And often, I mean, certainly in my lifetime and increasingly so over the last few decades, um, I, I hear this very kind of almost eugenicist mindset. It's like, well, humans are a plague. We're destroying everything. And 
I mean, humans do a lot of damage. I'm not saying we haven't destroyed vast waves, you know, uh, of wild animals' habitat. I mean, that, that's inarguable. But it's not really so much humans necessarily. A lot of the time, it's, it's big companies, big corporations that, that are doing this. Yeah. Although I'm not, you know, uh, taking away the role of uh, human hunting. As humans start, you know, uh, becoming more populous, the large charismatic megafauna, the animals that have uh, slow breeding cycles, like orangutan in particular, they're incredibly susceptible to, to being, you know, uh, put into a population decline that they can't really sustain population loss from hunting. I don't think any conversation is uh, about wildlife um, TV is complete without mentioning David Attenborough. Now, I've got lots of observations about particularly how he's become his idol the last few years. But I suppose if we were to give him some credit, uh, he, he he and his team did a great job over the years in bringing wildlife to the average person while trying not to invade the environment too much. I mean, I remember the zoo quest. I mean, this is before I was born, where they were literally going out and shooting animals and taking them from the wild to, to bring back and put on TV. But, I mean, one can also uh, agree that the, their position has matured on that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But then once you've got that trust... Um, well, are you genuinely advocating for animals or are you advocating for eugenicist policies? Humans are animals too, you know? Uh, uh, what are you doing with yeah. that trust? Leading people in the right direction? Because I've heard a lot of people uh, that are that, that looked up to is like, oh, carbon, you know, uh, is going to cause climate change. That's the big threat to these animals. It's like, I don't see climate ch change as being a threat to any animal on this planet. Just quickly before we go to the break, uh, very Big segue, but what do you make of shark cage diving? Um, yeah, I think it could habituate sharks to humans, and that might have devastating sort of consequences. Um, you know, connecting people to nature. I don't know that chumming the waters is necessarily a sane thing, so I guess I would be opposed to it. But coming up with less invasive ways that people can experience in Asia that isn't so much changing. Uh, safaris in, in you know Africa is probably some of the, the most sustainable ecotourism out there. So giving people that yeah. opportunity yeah. to see is important. But yeah, I'm not sure I'd agree with uh, cage diving, mm. although it would be interesting right. experientially. Hold that thought. Hold that thought, Leo. I'll be back with you shortly. My name is Jim. This is TNT. This is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. These people are evil. First they lie. Like, no, no, the jab is safe and effective. You have to take it because it's safe and effective. It's for the greater good. And then they'll deny that people that were injured were injured by the jab, which was so safe and effective. And now when they're finally forced to admit, yeah, your paralysis, it's from the mod RNA gene therapy injection. But we're going to make it up to you, the doctors in Canada say to the paralyzed woman. We're going to allow you to opt for euthanasia. I'm not making that up. Go check out the story. With these people, all roads lead to death. They are a death cult on a mission of spreading death far and wide. They want to kill people. They want to kill as many people as possible. They're on record as saying they want no more than 500 million people on Earth. The only problem, we have 7.5 billion people on Earth. They want to get rid of 7 billion people, and they're doing it slowly but surely. They need to be stopped, and they need to be stopped now. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk, TNT. Need a ride? Yeah! 
Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up. So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper. Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. You're listening to Germ Warfare with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Leo, just now we were talking in the break and uh, I asked you if you've been to South Africa or to Africa and you said no. Promise me you're going to change this in the near future. Absolutely, 100%. There's uh, a lot of my colleagues in Pandata in South Africa, so I've had a few uh, uh, options to go over and uh, yeah, I'd love to. Well, if you do, if you do come to Africa, obviously make your way down to the south, and uh, Nick and myself will have to have to have a glass of wine with you. It, it, that w- would be a great pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, how's that for segue? But I mean, South Africa has got some of the best game parks, and I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to experience nature, I mean, here, of course, Kenya and other places, but here you really can do it. And see how healthy the animals are. That's the thing, by the way. That's the big thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have to indulge my obsession, start collecting, collecting scat and seeing if they're all dying, if Ebola or Marburg. And he's like, no, no, they're all healthy. <laughs> the funny thing, though, is that you can, you can make the animals ill. I'm thinking of Kruger, the Kruger National Park. It, it's got an overpopulation problem um, of, of elephants. Uh, this is now a big a big discussion that's for another day and how do you deal with that but if you just allow that to occur the animals will start getting sick because the habitat gets completely unbalanced but when the habitat becomes unbalanced that they're destroying their own food source so animals do get sick in, in mm. the wild I'm not, I'm not pretending they don't if they're not eating well if there's a, yeah. a source of pollution often that's human-based pollution uh, then animals will get sick but if they're well fed and not under undue stress we're not seeing them drop like flies and that's where your, your mystical sort of you know pandemic uh, potential disease is meant to be devastating I mean, what do they say bubonic plague it took out two-thirds of europe or something it's like why isn't this happening in wildlife and when we do see sickly animals there's mm. always a cause it's like well, there's too many they've eaten all the grass somebody in the live chat picked up on your comment earlier right at the beginning when you said that um you were be, being offered money to to hold a particular line that's a type of censorship what the question was who I don't, who was offering you, but the more the more important question is why would that censorship or that attempt to silence you be be occurring? I think there's been several things I've been quite heavily censored on, and even in talking to sort of the the, the resistance groups that that have sort of come out of this, that when I talk in private, everyone's like, "That's a fascinating point, Leo. That's a wonderful observation." And then crickets, you never hear them mention it before. Uh, again, I'm not saying I've got the most important answers in all of this, but there are some solid things that debunk the idea of there having been a deadly pandemic. I think a, a lot of, uh, I'll even say it, a lot of my colleagues, uh, when I was saying, come on, people trust groups like us, you know, the, the uh, great apes have, you know, a, a lot of love for, from the West in particular. If we come out and say chimpanzees, orangutan and gorillas are not getting this, we can make a very solid case. And a lot of that censorship was from my own peer yeah. group, you know, that was saying, no, we don't want to talk about this. And then I became very suspicious, you know. So I started looking through people's accounts 
And I saw how much money was flowing in there. And then several of these larger groups, big NGOs, would contact me, especially when, when I get a little bit of a, a voice out, you know, uh, uh, from the void, and say, look, you're telling people chimps aren't getting sick. So then I'd have a very friendly voice approach or an overture saying, well, it must be so tough for you, Leo. No money to look after your animals. I'm like, yeah, lockdowns are killing us. And I'm like, well, we could help you. You know, we could just give you all the money that you need to keep your primates safe from COVID. I'm like, well, they're not in any danger from COVID. You know my position on this. So I started looking into some of the grants that were going out. Now this, I mean, this horrified me and this is much more Africa specific than it is Asia specific, but people were collecting money saying, well, we don't know if these vaccines are gonna be, you know, uh, uh, suitable for wild chimpanzees or wild gorillas, but one of the best ways you can protect your populations is to launch vaccination programs uh, and, and, you know, try and improve awareness of vaccinations in the uh, the human populations that surround the areas that you're working in. So I know groups took big, big money to go out. And I, I think even when people were offering me money, there was a nod in a week. They're like, just say you're going to do this stuff and you can spend it on food. You can spend it on staff bills. So they're basically saying there's money for free here if you just say you're protecting your animals from COVID. But imagine the sickness of then going around to poor communities and telling them, hey, you can trust us. We're over here. We're helping tourism and, and your animals, and we're here to help you too. Roll up your sleeve. I mean, I don't know how much success they would have had, but um, people were taking money for that. Mm. That's quite dark. Your forte is uh, is primates. Uh, in terms of keeping them healthy, what, what are the key points? Nutrition, number one. Uh, stress, number two. Uh, and sorry, there is another one like uh, accidents. You can't have them fighting each other. Uh, primates can be pretty brutal to one another, even killing each other. And that, that happens in the wild as well. But in captivity, it can be more pronounced. But 99.99% of all cases, as long as you're not adding in things like po poisons into their environment, uh, nutrition, not uh, uh, low stress. And the stress is really only for the captive ones. Okay. I think wild animals can process stress quite well. So it's very simple. Yeah. Almost like someone, something designed it to be that way. <laughs> Leo, uh, just, just on a, on a real, just, I guess, down to earth level, what, what, what is it like working with primates? Um, they're a lot more dangerous than people realize. And orangutan are a very friendly uh, uh, primate compared to the others. They're, they're not particularly aggressive or anything like that. Um, if they become heavily habituated to humans, I don't know that you're really working with them as they are in the wild. They, they become quite humanized. They, they'll, you know, uh, many of the orangutan I've worked with over the years and other primates will smoke cigarettes or see any caffeine source like coffee or Coca-Cola and go berserk for it. I've dealt with some animals that, that have, you know, had problems with, with uh, uh, other substances, alcohol, even drugs. Um, so I don't know that I'm really seeing a reflection of the wild animal. It's more of an anthropomorphized version. Um, but I mean, they're amazing that they're, they're incredibly strong, that, that, that you don't really realize it until you get attacked by one, that, that we are quite puny compared to these things. Um, with orangutans specifically, they are deep, deep thinkers, you know? Um, so it's it's quite nice when, uh, orangutan aren't very sociable, they're semi-solitary, that they, they, they live largely on their own, that you might not have seen one for three years, and you turn up to an area of the forest and they pop up, sit down on a log next to you for about five minutes, don't interact, don't do anything, 
and then go back off into the trees. And you know that's their way of just saying, all right. Mm. Uh, and, and then I feel like I might have done my job uh, in, in a good fashion there because they're not saying, have you got anything in your pockets? You know, have you got a banana? They're, they're just like, all right, yeah. you know, I know. And then they're off yeah. on their way again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, a rare privilege to work with all of these animals. Do you think they're self-aware? A bit of an existential question, I know. No, no, no. I, cognition and psychology is something I'm very interested in. It's what drew me a lot to working with, with the uh, primates. Um, I mean, they're certainly sentient. They, they can feel pain and, and grief at losing ch children. Are they conscious in the level that human beings are? I think it's, I mean, even, what is it, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or, or Caliban, you know, for, from Shakespeare. Um, I mean, I, I see so much of uh, monkey or primate behavior in humans. I really do. People behave like monkeys all the time. But I do think we're given an opportunity to transcend that base instinctual nature and reach for something higher. I have yet to see morality in any animal. Um, and the great apes are, are Yeah, are so let me, ask, let me ask that question differently. If you held up a mirror to one of the primates, would they recognize themselves? Yeah, most primates will, uh, a lot, not a lot, but several uh, highly intelligent species. There's that mirror awareness test, like you put a blue dot of paint on them. Um, it's not always the case, like mm -hmm. dominant male orangutan will sometimes freak out and go into an aggressive thing and try and fight the mirror. But um, yeah, a, a lot of them can recognize <laughs> themselves. A lot of primates. <laughs> All right, yes, the big one. <laughs> Who's more intelligent, an orangutan or a globalist? <laughs> well, I, I didn't see any orangutan wearing masks or telling other people to wear masks or injecting themselves with poison. So it, I'll, I'll give the orangutan marks on common sense. They're not very good at economics, though, and uh, screwing people over with uh, sophism and lies. So uh, intelligence uh, go to the globalist, but common sense to the orangutan. Um. <sighs> okay, I'm going to just play devil's advocate for a moment. But population of humans, population of animals, it's all expanding, right? And w this means that we encroach into animal territory by, by sheer default. Absolutely, yeah. What, what is the problem? What is the problem then in wild animals becoming slightly more humanized or more urbanized or more domesticated, dare I say it? I'm just, I'm throwing a, a complicated question at you. No, no, it's not that complicated. It's kind of something I've been working with for a long time. That they'll start killing people and destroying their crops. And even the the the, I mean, I I deal with a lot of Western tourists that come over and say, "Well, how can a local shoot an orangutan? How could they shoot a bear? These inhumane savages!" I'm like, if I went to a nice area in London and released a dominant male orangutan and one sun bear, uh, quite quickly someone's going to ask for those animals to be killed. If it you know kills someone's pet, smashes their car up, that these things can't be controlled. Um, they, they become pests quite quickly. Um, and even the people that love them most, they won't want to have a tiger wandering around inside their house any more than they want an orangutan inside their house. I've had orangutan inside my house. It's terrifying. And things get broken very rapidly, you know? Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, humans will win. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the real problem no, I, I, is... Okay, hold on. Mm. Yeah. Yes, go on. It's the, the unsustainable way that we're doing a lot of things. And I'm not putting all the blame on humans here. I, I think it, well, it's human corporations. There's mass monocultures. These are problematic. And then when you put roads into to vulnerable habitats where humans can't hunt, 
of people will use those roads. You've given them access to completely impenetrable areas. Um, that that is problematic uh, uh, for sure. Our current level of uh, you know, sus- um, I don't even like the word sustainability, but our current current level of respect for other animals. So hunters will go in. People start building you know uh, wooden huts or stuff like that, mm-hmm. and then they'll uh, grow their own crops and then blame the animals when they come in. So um, leaving animals well alone and giving them space that th- that can work quite well. Okay, that's that's kind of where I was going. So with with the obvious expansion that's occurring constantly something's going to give at some point what i I suppose what i'm trying to ask is where do you see that balance occurring what is does it look like down the line i think if any of history is true and i do struggle with a lot of it that there are these massive expansion uh, phases and then humans move into the cities again so I, I always used to, when when talking pre-2020, that jobs of people like myself or groups like my own is to keep enough alive that once humans start going back into the cities, they can repopulate and, and parts of nature can rewild. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, tougher enforcement is still, I think, very, very critical that there's a lot of, you know, very shady mm. sort of blur between um, the authorities that are meant to be stopping, let's say, rhino horn trade and uh, the, the the traders, you know, it's not clear cut. Uh, uh, it is. And you know what's sad also, you, you, you mentioned rhino horn trade. We didn't really have time now to get into that. But here in South Africa, it's a big thing. And uh, if you go to the Kruger National Park, like, like my wife and I like to do, uh, finding rhinos, A, is very tricky because obviously they don't tell you where they are. Uh, they'll tell you where all the other animals are, but rhinos, you, you, they won't tell you. So you're lucky if you see them. And when you do see them, they tend to have no horns because they've been dehorned. And it's so sad to see that. That's not how they're supposed to look, but it's for their own protection. And it just shows you the horrible conundrum that we are in. I've dealt with the other end of the trade here. It's quite popular in Asia, rhino horn. Yeah. It, it's horrific. Yeah, you know, okay. I'm not was... Yeah, go on quickly, quickly. Uh, just it is horrific what we've been doing as a species to these other animals. I'm not downplaying our, our threats against them, but I think our species has mm. been led by some of the worst—a kind of cacistocracy, if you like. We could do much better yeah, if we exactly had to right. lead it. Um, just quickly, quickly before I ask you for more information about about your work, uh, Anup is telling me that. Um, in Nepal, where he's from, it says they have rhinos walking in the street. And he says you can even look it up on the internet. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> no, I can believe that. <laughs> That's bonkers. Um, okay, quickly, uh, how how can I find out more? Uh, well, my charity is, doesn't have a very good website because I, I'm a complete Luddite. Uh, but we're projectborneo.org. Um, my uh, social media presence is heavily censored, it would be fair to say, but doesn't really focus on the work of my charity. I, I try and pass my views out a little bit on that one. Uh, I'm Biddle underscore Leo, uh, uh, at Biddle underscore Leo on Twitter, but my my, stuff, my content's a little bit more woo-woo, if you can see it at all. Uh, your work is absolutely fascinating, and uh, actually I'm going to invite you back for another conversation, if that's okay with you. I've got more points that we could go through. Be very happy to, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me on. Leah Biddle. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Leah Biddle. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, brother. Uh, and uh, and uh, thank you to uh, the guys in the studio. I am definitely going to, Anoop, I'm going to look this up. Rhinos walking in the street. 
I mean, <laughs> I, I can't wrap my head around this. Is it? Is it? <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm hearing you talking in my ear, and uh, unfortunately, the audience can't hear you. Anyway, it's Friday. Uh, send me an email if you want over the weekend, Jim Warfare at tntradio.live. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'll be back home on Monday. Uh, but on behalf of the guys in the studio and myself, my name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. Thank you.